1: Hey, Rockheads, get them earbuds out your brain and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 159 with guest Sean Wildermuth, recorded live Friday, January thirteenth, two 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now offering the Visual Basic 2005 masterclass and the ASP.NET 2.0 masterclass with Mark Dunn with dates in New London, Connecticut from January to May 2006 online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics makers of activereports.net Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who 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 cares, Carl Franklin. Thank you,
0: thank you very much,
2: and top of the week to you, this is Carl Franklin, you're listening to .NET Rocks, and uh, this is the first week that we have decided to put out the show on Tuesday, isn't it, Richard Campbell in Vancouver? It is indeed, and it's only because, well, there's more shows now, isn't there? More shows, we're staggering them. Mondays, when we have Mondays, will be on Monday, of course. DNR on Tuesdays, Hansel Minutes on Wednesdays and DNR TV on Thursdays lots of shows of course if you've been in the dark and you haven't heard hanselminutes.com Scott Hanselman and I just sort of show up to read him uh some questions that he's written for me and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I listened to the first show it was great rolled right along yeah no it's a snappy show and it's, you know this is Scott's idea he just you know wants None of the stuff that we're doing now and all content. He wants it to be an audio blog as much as possible. In fact, he recommends people listen to it on double speed. Nice. I recommend you listen to it on crack, personally. But, you know, that's just <laughs> me. Or at least some nice Woodford Reserve, you know, or something. But um, Then there's DNR TV, which I got to play intro games for, which was fun. DNR TV, of course, a Flash, 1024 by 768 hour-ish long. Video interview, and what you're looking at is not moving talking heads, wasting bandwidth, but uh, but uh, the screens of people who are writing code uh, and talking at the same time. Miguel Castro did the first show, and he's also doing this week's show to wrap up, which is up good the, stuff, uh, too. Great stuff, those. I remember from his interview uh, on on regular DNR,
3: you know that what he was talking about was so elaborate and complicated building those controls that it makes
2: a perfect example of why we need DNR TV. Exactly. In fact, that was one of the reasons that we uh, that I got the idea was that, you know, this you really have to see this. And it also means that we can do more technical content on DNR TV. Our goal is to interview the people that are going to be on DNR TV, to interview them on .NET Rocks earlier in the week. If you like you know what you hear and you want to go see, then you can go to DNR TV that week. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's, that's the way we want to do them. And if you think Miguel was great, and he was, just wait till you see what's coming up after Miguel. I mean, we've got some really good stuff coming up. C Sharp, even. Yeah. <laughs> and
3: right now, our bandwidth's burning a bit. We, uh, DNR TV's got lots of downloads.
2: Yeah, it. Uh, basically what happened is we put it on, I put it on a, a pipe that was being shared with some other stuff, thinking that uh, that would be okay, and nope, wasn't. So I got cut off, basically, while I was out doing errands and stuff, so there was like four or five hours where I couldn't get in to uh, fix things. But uh, then I did, and it was okay. So anyway, we're back in business. Also got a lot of time to work last week on... The new websites with Dax Pandy, my graphics guru, and uh, Nucation.com, in case you're wondering. And uh, that was uh, just an absolute dream experience. I mean, it was ASP.NET, Visual Basic.NET, so easy. And, and we weren't just like, you know, draggy droppy wizard stuff. I mean, we were writing a fair bit amount of code ourselves. And it was just an easy, easy experience, easy to edit. Dax is so talented; it drives me crazy. He and and so responsive too. You know, it's just like, you know, hey, we need this thing fixed. Boom, it's done. It's just, it's a joy to work with this guy. Also, um, the this show was originally uh, slated to be an interview with Bob wrestleman author of Coding Slave, and uh, we recorded a show with him and. Um, and uh, we we all listened to it afterwards and just decided that uh, it wasn't a good show and uh, you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't what we needed and uh, kind of odd but Bob told the story online at uh, shrinkster dot com slash b one b he wants you to go check it out because what he actually had to say was really important it just wasn't on topic it, it was uh, something that's been bugging him for a long time and rightly so I think. And uh, go check out what he's talking about. It's pretty important stuff. Shrinkster.com slash B1B. And so we come to the point in our show where we bring on the guest. This week's guest is none other than Sean Wildermuth, a Microsoft C Sharp MVP and the founder of Wildermuth Consulting Services, which is a company dedicated to delivering software and training solutions in the Atlanta, Georgia area. He's also a speaker on the INETA Speakers Bureau and has appeared several times at national conferences to speak on a variety of subjects. He's also the author of the book Pragmatic as well as the upcoming Prescriptive Data Architectures, both for Addison Wesley. He's been writing articles for a number of years for a variety of magazines and websites, too, including MSDN, MSDN Online, DevSource, InformIT, Windows IT Pro, the server on.net.com, and Intel's rich client series. Sean has enjoyed building data-driven software for more than 20 years. Jesus, Sean, you're making us look bad. What a resume. <laughs> been a busy boy. There's more URLs than Google on your, on your resume here, man. That's insane. I'm just trying to
4: up my Google rank.
2: <laughs> I think it's working. <laughs> and your website is com, right?
4: That's correct.
2: Now, I was talking with uh, Mark Dunn uh, this week, as, you know, he and I are still buds, and we like to chat at 3 in the morning when there's nothing else going on, and, uh, except for programming, of course, which is what we do, 3 in the morning. Absolutely. And uh, he, sa- early? he said... Uh, early? No. <laughs> well, anyway, he was telling me about uh, some interesting things you've been thinking about uh, in terms of your experiences with ADO.net and some customer installations. And it got me thinking that, um, you know, we haven't talked to you before, and, and we've run into each other a number of times. I've read your stuff. I love it. And uh, it just clicked, you know, uh, hey, last minute, how would you like to come in and do an interview? So here you are.
4: Well, I'm happy to be here.
2: So Sean, what is this all about?
4: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I've been working with uh, ADO.NET um I'm sorry, ASP.NET 2.0 for a while now. Uh I've dealt with with a couple of um mid-sized customers trying to build some decent websites with them. And the problem really isn't ADO.NET 2.0. I don't have a whole lot of issues there. It's really with ASP.NET 2.0. Um I've been a long proponent of, of of data sets, and maybe the only one that's left on the raft <laughs> um, as far as type data sets go. Yeah. Um, but it just seems to me that um, the team inside Microsoft is, has been fractured. Uh, what I mean by that is um .NET 2.0 introduces this concept of data sources, which I know exist in WinForms as well, but we'll ignore them for that for now. In ASP.NET .NET 2.0. There's several different types of data sources that will allow you to, in theory, um, hook up quick, you know, RAD, rapid application development, sort of data binding, and write pages fairly quickly. And, and, and you know, and frankly, in a lot of projects, that's really what you want. You know, uh, you, people aren't necessarily going to create in every small office, you know, uh, elaborate data architectures to, mm-hmm. to do one thing or another. Sometimes it is this very uh, uh, speed-to-market or speed to um, Um, enterprise developer desk, um, that's the experience they want. The problem is that some of the things that ADO.NET, even back in the 1-1 days, did well, like optimistic concurrency and disconnected concurrency, um, the data source people decided they wanted to write their own. So there's a disconnect between the way... um, um, optimistic concurrency is done between the two, and, and and there's a bunch of little pieces, little moving parts inside the data sources. That, frankly, uh, is the reason I'm half bald today.
2: the the whole idea of <laughs> The whole idea of optimistic concurrency is a little strange when you're thinking of offline data, though. What does yeah. that really mean?
4: That really means um, uh, something that I, I call pragmatic idea: not disconnected concurrency, instead of trying okay. to pretend it's optimistic.
5: In other
3: and words, that's the dealing idea with. That yeah,
4: that I'm Wouldn't gonna that make taste. it
3: really optimistic.
4: <laughs> it, it would it <laughs> ultra would make optimistic, it, yeah. You know. but but the idea that um, there are ways that we can tell whether the data's changed since we've been there before or not. and right. the way that ADO.NET one one and two o do it is this idea of 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 uh, um, seeing if any of the columns have changed.
2: And if checking none of the every columns have changed. yeah, checking every column in the where clause, which can be a problem if you have got a lot of columns.
4: Absolutely. There are much better ways to do it.
2: Um, but, you know, to be fair, this is the way that works across all databases. And so that is obviously why they chose this method, right?
4: Absolutely. It's very robust. You right. know, when I when I talk about the disconnected concurrency in ADO.net, I'm very clear about this. This um, isn't going to work well in, in high transaction load systems. This isn't going to work well. You're going to want to change it. But if you have 10 users that are hitting one database server in an office of 20 people, it's probably going to work and it's going to you know save three or four weeks, sometimes months, of development time. And in, in the right organization, that's fine. They're never going to reach those loads where they're going to go away. Right. You know, our delete statement is 34 lines long. Right. <laughs>
3: But, you know, the, you know, the upside to the approach here is you know, saving cycles uh, in, at the expense of ultimately scalability. You know, the biggest thing about writing this sort of stuff yourself is not so much it is incredibly hard to write, but that you have to be very, very sure that it does what you think it does, that right. it's reliable. And testing all those cases
2: is where you really can drive yourself nuts. And that's going to scale if you need it to scale. Uh, like you said many times, you don't need it to scale. So you don't worry about it.
4: Right. And and they're, there, you know, one of the, uh, in in the book I'm writing now, one of the things I'm trying to look at is I, I have gotten the question a lot. Uh, you know, I have a project. Can you tell me what the right way to, you know, should I be using Hibernate type data sets, one of 100 ORM mappers? Should I, you know, wait for links? you know what should i be doing and the problem is <clears throat> that i i before i can suggest anything i need to know a lot about a project right. it's not just oh what language are you using or is it .NET or ado.net you have to understand what the loads are going to be like you have to understand what the culture in in an organization is going to be like do you already have um lots of knowledge in the database and right. or is it all you know vb programmers or c++ programmers have never touched the database that you know um and and so one of the approaches i'm trying to understand is you know this kind of um this uh, rainbow of different types of applications and 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 how to apply those uh um that knowledge to figure out what is the right sort of approaches what kind of project are archetypes are there out there and what kind of approaches work with those
2: it's a great um, it's a great endeavor um Yeah.
4: My toes are crossed. Yeah, how far have you gotten? I mean,
2: that's the next question.
4: (laughs) Page two, (laughs) I think. when does it
2: ship, you know?
4: (laughs) Uh, The book's supposed to be out in September. Cool. So it's not all that uh, soon, but uh, something I'm passionate about. Yeah. So if we get back to ASP.net for just a moment.
5: Sure.
4: Keep me on my kind of rant. One of the issues you have if, let's say, you're going to try to do some RAD development and using the SQL data sources, is that if you decide, hey, I want that same sort of behavior that I used to get with um, ADO.NET and command builders, this disconnected, robust, but not all that performant concurrency, Mm. it works as long as your database doesn't allow nulls in any columns. Mm -hmm. That seems like a particularly large gap.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's pretty serious.
4: Yeah. Um, And it's been reported to Microsoft and... I haven't gotten, uh, you know, any good responses back. And Mm -hmm. I've been talking with uh, some people about, you know, writing a new um, data source to kind of combat that. But at the same time, if we look at the object data sources, which a lot of people are looking at as, as, you know, another solution of maybe looking at um, business objects or, you know, a lot of people that have have tied themselves to um, uh, uh, Rocky Latka's books want to see how easy it is to, to tie uh, CSLA objects to them, and it works fairly well with with objects. One of the frustrations I have in that I think there still is a space for type data sets is that there's no data source that works well with type data sets. In fact, it's not even works well. It's um, uh, The response I've gotten back from Microsoft is, well, it's going to take major changes to the type data set. The best thing you can do is wrap them in an object wrapper
5: yeah. um,
4: in order to get them to work, which which seems kind of antithetical to
2: what Well, it's always been I uh, I've always found that um a, a very nice architecture seems to be developing uh business objects that hook into a type data set which hangs off of the business object mm-hmm. and you know hooks hooks into the events to do validation and things like that. Of course, you can run into trouble if you if you break the links, you know. But um but but you know if if you're careful enough uh that seems to be a pretty good a pretty good way to do things what do you think yeah, of that
4: I, I I would agree there i i i i have um come to the point in my life my my uh, relationship with Microsoft that i I feel like i've um given up on type data sets being what I ultimately really you know thought they should be which yeah. is a good, I, I, I've often talked about the sandwich model where yeah. I thought type data sets doing the code gen for the hard work of, 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 of creating the, um, I shouldn't say the hard work, but the labor-intensive work of actually creating the data models, letting the data sets themselves handle the, the work that eventually most um, business objects have to do, yeah. which is column-level detection for changes.
3: Mm-hmm. All um, right. Dirty flags.
4: Yeah, and then yep. in the middle, you end up writing your code that actually does the business logic, the part that's actually the only interesting part left of business <laughs> object development, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But that hasn't come to pass, and so trying to find something that's kind of the next the, the next.
2: Maybe the problem is that, that we're just looking for an all-in-one object. Maybe it's I, better that we have them separated.
4: I'm coming to the conclusion that that's probably true. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in the last couple weeks with Hibernate, which um, is a solution to do, you know, object-relational mapping pretty well. It's an open source. Actually, I shouldn't say Hibernate. In Hibernate,
5: Mm.
4: which is the .NET flavor of Hibernate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm pretty impressed with with a lot of the stuff they're doing. They have a lot of support for, you know, lazy loading down a tree and propagating saves uh, uh, across relationships Mm. that aren't typical, uh, like many-to-many, one-to-ones, and one-to-many, many-to-ones.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, but again, you're paying some cycles for development time. So it, it's another one of these kind of great for some subset of types of projects. And,
3: it strikes me that this is no different than any other ORM-related battle. You're going to trade automation off for efficiency at the database.
4: Absolutely.
2: You absolutely. Know, one thing that comes to mind when you th- when I hear you describe this book is, Practical, geez. I mean, you know what you're planning to do here is map out the different types of uh, different types of applications and situations where you'd need X over Y, and and that that's the kind of stuff that people are craving, absolutely craving, and that's what the consultants get the big bucks to to step in and figure out, right?
4: And the, I'm gonna not gonna trying a to get book. rid of consultants, uh, but um, certainly the hope is, you know uh, the, the 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 picture in my uh, that I have uh, of the book in my mind has always been very prescriptive, where you can, you tell me your symptoms and I can tell you the the prescription. Yeah,
2: that's a great word. Yeah, yeah.
4: Um, because what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to. It, the, by no means I mean I don't mean to uh, to knock Rocky Luck at all by saying this, but I didn't want to write a book that um, you know had my own. Uh, um, Framework. Right. I didn't think, you know, I didn't think that filled enough of the case because I actually started or you know, I, I, uh, in my mind I had abandoned type data sets and I started with this kind of skunk work project of, okay, if I was going to write a type data set or a data set from the ground up, taking some of the best ideas from all these projects I've been looking at, can I do it in something that would really be useful to most projects? And I got about halfway through and I went, you know, there's all of these um, – Pros and cons, uh, okay, if I do this, I'm I'm making it easier for some people, but then making it, you know, let's say I'm making the code gen so you can generate more um, uh, more code in less time, but then maybe it's becoming less tunable for kind of the DBA side.
5: Right. we we'll have,
4: so in a high transaction system, that starts to break down. Okay, we make it really tunable, and then it's harder to develop against. And,
3: right. And, um, you know, this is a classic problem. Uh, people ask me, well, what's the right way to do this? says, you know, if there was a right way to do this, we'd all be doing that. <laughs> Correct. The point is, we all do different things because there is no one right way. It depends. Right.
4: It really does. It really does. And that's, you know, uh, those are the kinds of projects I enjoy doing as a consultant when someone brings in and goes, let, let, let me lay you out what we're doing and tell me if we're doing it wrong or help us figure out how to do it Right. I much prefer that than you know here's here's how we 're doing it and do it exactly this way you know if i'm the, in those cases I feel like i'm a I'm, I'm a body doing labor versus someone that's actually you know helping and uh, yeah yeah you know, so in some ways the book is 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 promoting the type of work I really enjoy doing
3: so have you got a sense of sort of the the dozen different techniques that are, you're going to approach for prescription?
4: I haven't narrowed it down to a dozen yet. Um, I'm looking... <laughs> a, I'm looking across a lot of different solutions. Uh, uh, you know, starting with kind of the out-of-the-box write-your-own business objects and, um, from the ground up. I'm going to be including uh, CSLA in there. I know I'll be including Hibernate. I'll probably be including some Commercial pro- uh, products like LBGen Pro, and I am um, um, uh, started to look at um, Paul Wilson's ORM mapper, uh, probably discuss Link. But there's also, you know, it's not just how do you develop the business objects. I'm also discussing when is the right place to use web services as a middle tier, and, you know, I'll be, certainly be covering some um, um, uh, uh, Indigo discussion in there because. Uh, obviously Indigo is going to allow you to do things that are closer to remoting as well as closer to web services.
3: And yeah. So if I understand, by the way you're describing this, you're going to look at each of these technologies and say, these are the cases where this technology makes sense?
4: I'm actually going to, I've taken the reverse approach. I've started with the um, asking the reader what to look at the sense. application. Right. Uh, and and from the application, I'm, I've developed application archetypes. These um, your Your application looks most like a a a quick to market WinForms app where the right. database is within walking distance. Okay, this is the kind of um, approach I would suggest taking. Or you have a, you know, you're getting a million hits a day. You've got a a segmented database where um, people are, you know, um, um, hitting your database from smartphones, from smart devices, from WinForms app and WebForms app. How do you create a? What sort of technology would you use? to create a data access that you can use across all of those with the idea of, you know, um, uh, sometimes connected, richly connected, or web-connected. Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of um, not only handle the the pieces on both ends, but also kind of in the middle. You know, right. some, uh, most applications are in the middle. Most are, well, they want us to be quick to market, but we know that we're going to save more time by putting some front end into building some sort of data architecture we can use across three projects.
2: Yeah, Um, Yeah, I've seen that.
4: But instead of doing a laundry list of products and and saying where they would work, I'm actually kind of taking the reverse approach. Let me help you decide that your project is most like one of these, what I'm calling archetypes. And then for each of these archetypes, this is how I would solve this archetype.
3: The 24-7 million transaction per hour reliability is everything, but you don't yeah, don't hold, slow down for anything kind of project.
5: Mm.
4: Right, and, and and those use command builders and web services.
3: Yeah, we're unprepared slow to, down to put a lot more coding lot time, time in for performance <laughs> time, right? And, and this is the kind of trades you end up making. Absolutely. We're, we're going to write three times as much code and test ten times as much because speed is king and reliability is essential.
4: Absolutely. And it, there's also the question about, you know, who... Who owns the SQL? Is the SQL generated by a framework like um, and Hibernate does, or even in, in some ways the way Link will do? Or yeah. are you going to need all stored procs really tightly coupled where DBA is going to do all the, the tuning outside the application instead of, you know? And and, and some of those questions are going to come down to where's your skills set at? Do you have these yes. really good DB? Uh, um, Database developers, or do you have a bunch of UI guys, and but you have some good DBAs, and and sometimes those are going to help make your decisions about where, where that's done, and it's not, you know, performance. As a programmer, I want to think performance is the most important thing, always, always, always. But it's not, you know.
3: No, it's not it's at all.
4: Ninety percent of the projects I work on, you know, people are like, well, how much is this going to cost us? We have yeah. to be able to justify it, whether we're saving money or we're spending, uh, um or we're trying to get people to pay us more money
3: we
2: yeah. still
4: have to justify
2: costs there's also lots of intangibles that you don't find out until a week into the project like <clears throat> who's got control over the data who you know what is what is their stance you know what's the political situation among the developers and the dbas and the and the managers and you know who's on the list you know who who has the code <laughs> and Absolutely. how long is it going to be around
4: I I tell a story in the second chapter um, of a company I was working for in in Boston that we had developed a search engine um, against this huge warehouse of data we had. uh, The end users were going to search. And we had prototyped it against uh, against SQL Server and Oracle. And it it wasn't quite a toss-up. We had decided that SQL Server was a little faster because of the nature of the way we're doing queries. And we were, uh, we were brought into a room and said, you're going to do it on Oracle, we know it's slower. Okay, why? And these are the kind of intangibles you have to, as a developer, learn to not only shrug off, but anticipate. Well, we want Oracle to buy our product. So if we switch our database platform to Oracle... They've agreed to buy five years of subscription on our product. Those are the sort of business decisions that affect developers every day. And that happens all over the
2: place. Because the boss's brother works for Oracle. Absolutely. (laughs) I
3: I bumped into a company where they had an agreement with a vendor to buy a large-scale Oracle solution and hadn't followed through on it. And they had like six months left before they had to buy this thing. And so they were desperate for a project before they were going to be in violation of the contract. They were desperate for a project that would use it. Yeah. Didn't matter. The requirements are out the
2: window. The piece of paper says we must have this. Put it to work. Yeah. Yeah, you got you engineers there. You you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what you do. That's what we pay you for. Right?
4: You know, back 10 years ago, uh, I was kind of a purist and I was like, but that isn't the right engineering decision to make or... Or that's not going to make sense and we're not going to be able to build on that. And then I became a little bit more pragmatic as I got closer to, you know, the top ends of organizations. And we're like, oh, you mean we might not make payroll next week?
3: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have a choice to be doing this the right way or doing it the way that means that we all still have jobs. Right.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that certainly, ch- you know, changes perspective.
2: Yes, it does. <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah. Data Dynamics is the original sponsor of .NET Rocks. They believed in our show when we only had a half a million downloads a year. So just by listening to this ad spot, you're helping them to help us bring .NET Rocks to your ears every week. Of course, I'm talking about their pride and joy product, Active Reports for .NET. Written completely in managed C-sharp, Active Reports for .NET sets the standard for .NET reporting. It's licensed per developer and is royalty-free to distribute. But let me tell you about the core feature set. Of course, you get a report wizard, but it also comes with a Microsoft Access Report Conversion Wizard. Talk about productivity right out of the box. Now you can just upsize your access reports right into ActiveReports.net, and you're off to the races. Of course, there are export filters for PDF, Excel, RTF, HTML, text, and TIFF formats, and also a Windows Viewer Control that supports split and multi-page views and in- includes a Table of Contents pane with a new Thumbnail View tab. You can perform text searches of reports and it also allows customization of the viewer's toolbar. The professional edition of Active Reports for .NET features an end-user report designer control to provide end-users with the ability to create and modify their own reports. How cool, and that just comes with a product. You don't have to buy a separate license for the client. It also includes a server-side web viewer control that takes advantage of ASP.NET's HTTP handlers so you can display reports without having to write custom code for export to popular formats like HTML and PDF. And the new version of actorreports.net includes a full-featured chart control, page thumbnails in the Windows viewer control, HTML and enhanced table support in the rich text box control, an enhanced script editor with syntax highlighting, And perhaps most importantly, you can data bind to any class that implements the iList interface in addition to other supported data types. It's very cool. you got to check it out. Just All I ask is you go to datadynamics.com and download a trial version of activereports.net. Hey, even if you decide to buy it, it's not going to break the bank. Very reasonably priced. And as I said before, it's licensed on a per-developer basis and royalty-free to distribute check them out at www.datadynamics.com
5: Yeah, you know, but
4: you know I On the um, on the other hand, I think most organizations are afraid they're doing it wrong, and I think there's much. I think there's a lot of good code being written out there. Um, Often, because I'm a consultant, I come into an organization. They're like, "Well, we'd like you to do a code review here. I'd be happy to." And you know, it would be easy for me to just go, "Well, I can just tear them apart this way," or try to you know build myself up as, "Oh, I'm you know I'm an incredibly smart guy." By Making everyone else look bad, but the you know the, the reality is, especially when it comes to data access code, most data access code works well. There's you know five ten percent of projects where things start to melt, and you know they're not closing connections or they're doing horribly uh, ridiculous things with their database. And you know, um, uh, I'm actually looking forward to the next three years uh, as a consultant because I I think that. Um, uh, the CLR and SQL server is going to be my Y2K. It's going to be my way the consultant, to make a ton of money by fixing projects, by just ripping out Sean, you know, what, half their CLR code What's the
2: worst thing you've seen?
4: In the CLR?
2: No, no, no. I in, haven't. Oh, okay. No, uh, in general. Code <coughs> review time. What's the worst yeah, thing you've seen?
4: The, probably the worst thing I've seen. It's a good question. Um, in the .NET world, it's typically that they think that uh, um, um, everything is managed, not just memory. So uh, people are forgetting to close connections and all those sorts of things. You know the oh, the oh. Whole, what's I disposable for? Right. And why? Is, why is most of ADO.NET disposable?
5: Mm.
4: Well, we have a garbage collector, don't we? Mm. Um, you know that <laughs> yeah. that's the most egregious error I see, and that's when I see somewhat um, um, over and over again. Um, But the one that usually, you know, hurts people the most um, is really bad database management. You know, GUIDs is primary keys on large transaction systems. That's one that Mm -hmm. bites people all the time. Yeah. They don't think about, you know, index fragmentation and all all of that, you know. And that's pretty well known if you've been around a little while, but, um, uh, you know, just... What, what do you mean indexes and peak in, we should have indexes and foreign keys and everything? That, that's another one I get a lot.
3: <laughs> but it's interesting, these problems come back to the physicality of your data. In order to write this on a disk in an efficient way, it needs to be in some kind of sensible order
5: mm-hmm. so that
3: you can get it back again. And the way you've done this guarantees that it will never be in a sensible order. Right, And so, naturally, performance is going to degrade. That has got a lot to do with physical movement of heads over drives, and it has to do with anything involving electronics, per se, or in, in the, the code itself.
4: I, and I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, the other thing I see, actually, quite a lot is, is people that don't want to use, um, you know, brute force checking for concurrency and decide, well, let me just use a date-time field, um, mm. not knowing much about things like timestamp fields. Right. Um, and, and just getting, you know, running into the problems of, what do you mean the clock isn't granular enough for me to do 5,000 inserts a second?
2: Yeah, I've, right. <laughs> I, I think you, what you just said can be, um, can be put another way, which is just not knowing what's in your tool set, you know, yeah. and yeah. doing it the hard way when there's an easy solution already in the framework. Absolutely. I have te- I've told yeah. people on my show and in my classes again and again that you, your time would be better spent if you took a week off of work to do nothing but read the, uh, the documentation.
4: Absolutely. And it, .NET was kind of a different world in that way. Because, you know, I'm an I'm, I'm a old C++ guy um, before .NET, and... Um, it was very easy in C plus plus to go. Well, I'm sure there's you know this algorithm's been written before, but they can't do it better than I can. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and that you know that's a very common problem. And in .net, <laughs> that's gone away some. Yeah. But it certainly hasn't gone away. You know, people are writing still instead of writing you know these tight sort algorithms, which is what every C plus plus developer had their own bubble sort or you know, whatever was their favorite little algorithm that they, you know, thought that, you know, the STL wasn't going to do a good enough job for. Um, but now you see people go, oh, there's a mail system inside.net? or, oh, you know, I don't have to go to com to right. be able to get directory service information out of, my, um, out of my active directory.
2: I have a friend from Kiev, let's just call him Lev, and he, he says, hey, Carl, you should use my uh, encryption algorithm. And I'm like, your <laughs> encryption algorithm? Yeah, yeah, I wrote it myself. Works great. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to use your encryption algorithm. That's ridiculous. He's like, no, 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 it's good. You can use it all the <laughs> time. No, it's it's easy. It's good. Do we really need
4: anything but ROT13?
2: <laughs> ROT13?
4: Yeah. That's
2: just
5: shifting um, all the letters, 13. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did get the one. alphabet.
3: But, you, you know, the, the, an interesting thing that happens when you become a consultant is you quickly learn that the more code you write, the more code you have to care for, and that they mm-hmm. keep calling you back on and torturing you with, and you, you get highly motivated to find solutions that other people can own. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. you can get it in there and get out again.
4: And, and in a lot of ways, that that depends not only on, you know, using common code, but commenting your code really clearly. And not just um, NDOC sort of comments, but comments through the code. So if someone's looking at, you know, some method I wrote, I want them to be able to read it, make modifications they need, and go about their business. I don't want to have to come in because yeah, one hour of work, you know, lose. I lose money in one hour of work. I, you know, I may make yeah. money on 40 hours of work, but if someone wants me to come in and fix some quick thing, invariably that's a loss.
2: And I don't want to see comments like, now create a string builder. <laughs> you know, I don't need that as a comment, you know.
4: Yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. i more want. well, this is what we're going to do here. Right. Or we're checking to see that if this is null because it... My library over here knows a valid. Yeah, yeah. You know. I it should just be readable. I mean, uh, uh, I didn't graduate uh, as a CS student um, when I first started programming in BASIC, uh, Commodore BASIC. Um, you know, comments were a waste of bytes.
3: Bytes. So, oh, yeah. memory. I, all right, all right. I
4: never learned as as a youngster that commenting was good style. I really didn't learn that until probably my seventh or eighth year working on the job where, you know, I started to notice people that I that I um, admired around me. I would look at their code and go, well, that's the kind of code I want. Mm-hmm. I want my stuff to be that clear and concise. Yeah. You know, none of this, uh, you know, doing, <clears throat> obfuscating your code by writing it in a terse <laughs> way so you get called back or so you never get fired.
2: Right. And you know that happens a lot more than people think. It happens Absolutely. a lot.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. The last thing I've ever wanted to be is invaluable.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
2: Want to move on to the you next You can't project. go on vacation.
3: Right? You, can't. I mean, you can't leave. You can't no. do anything. You know, Not for a moment. It's, they're going to come unglued if you're not in immediate reach.
4: It's nice to be the hero once in a while, but not you know having to be the the guy with the red stapler.
3: Right
5: right <laughs> <laughs> there's an oblique reference for <laughs> you <laughs>
2: mm. so sean um how many let, let's quantify your experience here shall we sure how, how many of these projects have you worked on do you estimate
4: in my lifetime yeah or well
2: let's just let's just say since.net Ooh. I mean, you've been pretty much working steadily, right?
4: Yeah, I've been working um, with .NET since the PDC bits. Mm. Um, you know, I started working on my book as soon as the PDC bits came out. It's interesting. At the time, I was working at Developmenter with Chris on Sells on their Gen X project. Mm-hmm. And um, we were quickly trying to get into kind of the C++ and the VB space and kind of as a last gasp. I wrote a um, Visual Studio integration one weekend. I was like, "Oh my God!" It's taken us six months to do one for for C plus plus, and probably three months to do one for Visual Basic. And being able to you know write .NET code was such a relief. Yeah, um, it, was, it was you know just so much so much easier that I really grabbed onto it really fast. I've worked, I've done mate It's hard to say projects, but at least a hundred. I mean. Been involved in a lot of, a lot of work.
2: So you're in a good position to, uh, to recognize the archetypes of these different projects.
4: I would think so. Yeah. You know, I'd I've, say that I've, qualifies. I've worked, you know, I've worked um, with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, and I've been lucky to work in the last three years with a few very large organizations. But, 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 but most of my experience, you know, if you look back into my history has been a lot of startups and a lot of, uh, you know, under 200, under 300, which I think are, you know, they're, they're the majority of the types of operations that are using .NET right now. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are, you know, the Fords and the, and the Coca-Cola as well. I guess Coca-Cola isn't using .NET, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> out there that are using .NET, but on the sheer number of developers... Um, I think the small and medium sized business space just blows away the fortune five thousand probably
2: well, you know this is it's something we were to- just talking about, right, Richard? about the, uh, yeah. the the success of the small team is really the story in dot netland uh, because you just don 't need the, the the big organized effort for the most you know, for most projects. would you agree
4: I would I mean one of the things i 'm not a huge proponent of like um, of every single agile methodology. I'm not a big proponent of like um, uh, um, pair programming. I understand, and I think there's some things to be learned there, but I'm not a huge proponent of it. But what I did recognize coming from the kind of C space is in C, you need to plan things out very carefully because um, to make a change was really, really expensive. Yeah. Um, but, uh, mostly in the debugging and retesting, which is horribly expensive to, um, you know, make an architectural change. And .NET allowed me not only to write less code, but allowed me to be more, um, uh, I hate to use the word agile, but more prepared for change.
2: Yeah, that's agile.
4: Yeah, if I had to rebuild a component of a system, it wasn't, you know, a six-month effort. It was a two-week, five-day, one long weekend. Um, um, <laughs> undertaking, you know? Mm. I mean, it, it, it well, made, it, made gonna... it possible so that instead of having to over-architecture everything in the beginning, which is, I've been involved in a lot of projects that tried to figure, you know, uh, process was such a big Plan deal, for every
3: contingency.
4: Absolutely. Right. Or, uh, you know, the, the the bane of my existence was the completely meta-data, metadata-driven system. We're going to yeah. create everything's going to be an attribute somewhere in a, you know, uh, uh, in a database. So no matter what we do, we just can change a few bits and it will magically fix itself. Now,
2: now this is interesting. Did you, you didn't happen to hear the last show we did with Chris Sells, did you? I
4: didn't, actually. So, uh, though I've been interested in some of his blog entries about uh, model-driven development. Right.
2: So he, it was about model-driven development and just you know, how superior declarative programming is in general. And it's interesting to hear you, a contemporary of his, uh, sort of saying that you did work on one of these projects and it, it went horribly wrong.
5: Well, I you mean, know,
2: I... was it model-driven or was it just attribute-based?
4: It was really attribute-based. I've been um, lucky or unlucky to be uh, in a number of projects where they were trying to take large warehouses of data, not really a data warehouse, but large volumes of data, and figure out how to expose that to people. And typically, what what organizations try to do? Well, first they you know they kind of normalize all their data somewhere in uh, 1,500 databases, and go, okay, all we have to do is write incredibly complex SQL queries to get at all, all of this. Mm. And when they feel the pain of the of you know trying to get at you know, let me find all of the companies whose whose president is uh, middle name is Bob and has. Mm. Um, wife's sister who's a redhead
2: 25 joins later yeah
4: right and that's probably you know that's difficult but it's not when, just
3: the joins it's there were 1500 databases and the guys in in 300 of them
5: <laughs> yes. right. try right. and put
3: them together
4: <laughs> yeah how do you know yeah, who's you data do that first all don't that you other <laughs> stuff? but so when when they look at that they go okay creating those queries was difficult but for the most part the queries performed okay Um, But the queries themselves are really difficult to kind of construct. Mm. So a lot of people uh, probably five or six years ago were trying to invert the database, made everything very metadata-driven,
5: and you end
4: up, you know, very tall, thin tables instead of wide um, tables. And that sort of works, except that it makes, you know, getting the data you need um, horribly slow on the database, because it's doing all these table scans, there's really hard to index against that sort of data you can't go well the hair color of the wives isn't important but in that same column in the database we happen to think that the um revenue for a company which we're storing because everything's name value pairs how do you index against that yeah um
2: i've seen both i've seen horror stories on both extremes
4: and I, i and i think it is i'm actually of the opinion now that metadata is most useful at code gen so that instead of trying to make everything either hard-coded or so unhard-coded, so metadata-driven that you should be able to flip some switches and the system should magically change,
5: mm-hmm. that
4: using metadata to um, do code gen so that a recompile uh, once you change some of this data can actually make some changes. I think there's a real big win there, um, and certainly not just in type data sets, um, that, that that's kind of where the the idea started to you know ruminate in my mind, but in code gen in general I mean obviously I came from uh mm. development in Gen X, so I was a proponent of code gen before anyone could make money on it mm.
2: <laughs> and and basically that was what Chris was saying last week too is that you know when writing code uh it's much more expensive to write imperative code, do this than write an engine. And then let the metadata say, you know, how to do, uh, not how to do, but what to do.
4: Yeah, and I, th- I think uh, I think Chris and I are on the same page with that.
2: Uh, yeah. So you're, uh, you're, isn't you're, this you're all talking about getting away,
3: writing less and less code, writing more and more macro-sized code so there's fewer lines that you own that do more.
2: And I guess what you're saying, Sean, is that when you uh, extend that into the database, that's where you may run into trouble.
4: Uh, you can, certainly. Um I think it belongs at the code level yeah. because what, what's harder to do at the database level is, is um, compile checking. Mm. It's harder to ask the database, hey, I just changed this attribute. Is that, how is that going to change the way my system works mm. than it is to say, hey, I changed this attribute, and suddenly it used to be an int, and now it's breaking code all over the
5: place. Yeah, okay.
4: Um, that compilation step has some really great benefits. And I, I say really compilation, but also kind of the... In, uh, the unit testing um, space there as well. It's very hard to know how to deploy and unit test and do type checking in the database.
2: Yeah, I would agree. Uh, yeah.
4: Yeah. No argument yeah. here. Yeah, Plus, there's a
3: whole other things you need to test for. I mean, you talked about index fragmentation. There is a tricky test for you. How Absolutely. is this going to behave after we write 100,000 rows?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the one of the hard things mm. to do is performance testing in any way because anytime I create dummy data, it's very difficult to create data that's different enough that's going to look anywhere like it will in the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah,
3: very difficult. You know,
4: and just putting a random function in it isn't good enough.
3: <laughs>
5: right. You know, no. it's
4: it's the well, different what names look like and what you know missing data and included data. You almost data, have to use historical data. That,
2: you almost have to use historical data like real data that's just been. Form, you know, converted and changed if at all possible.
4: If at all possible, I mean, that's always the best.
2: That's always one of the things I've found deeply challenging
3: besides generating the data is realistic behavior of load, you Mm. know, the surge loads and the way that people behave when they hit servers all at once. You You run an advertisement on television and you get bombed for three minutes and then it goes away and comes back 30 minutes later when the next ad ran.
2: So, you well, know, if I could sum up if I could sum up what you're saying here, Sean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but sure. if a consultant walks into your shop, looks around for about a half an hour and says, ah, I have the perfect solution, he or she is full of shit.
4: I think so. I think so. <laughs> because it's interesting. Um, rarely can I help a company if all they want me to do is look at their code. Um,
5: yeah, well, sure. To,
4: talking to the people to understand, you know... One, why they wrote code, why they wrote it in certain ways, and to understand the, you know, the fundamentals of how you know, the holistic vision of a project is. Um, you know, uh, I went into one um, place as a consultant, and I started looking, and I was like, oh, my God, they're using Commerce Server in a way that has, makes no sense. They're serializing these 15 meg blocks every, every time they sell a product, and it doesn't make any sense. And so I, pre- I presented this, and um, I was only told after the presentation that the, uh, the person who was there to make the decision and tell us what a good job we did was the person that lobbied so hard to get Commerce Server in there, you yeah. know. So mm-hmm. I didn't understand the political situation well enough yeah. to know, hmm, what's a better way of saying this instead of saying, um, the best thing to do is rip this thing out that you, <laughs> you know, that you just uh, um, put your political life in this company,
2: you know, you know, I keep four. coming back to this story, Sean. When I was in college, I took a systems analysis class, and the very first thing that we did was learn what an organizational chart was. <laughs> Absolutely. I, and I thought to myself, huh? What this is systems that? analysis? <laughs> what is this? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's,
4: you know, that's the hardest part. Yeah. You know, looking at the, at the bits or how the different systems are relating to each other.
2: Yeah, certainly. As a developer, you don't, you know, you know, that's a totally different skill.
4: Yeah, and I, I think people are coming around to that when it comes to UI development. People are starting to look at user interface development, finally, uh, you know, with actual users involved instead of letting developers design UIs. Yeah. Uh, um,
2: or letting designers think, design UIs. Say right? Again, Have, having an actual job title of UI designer.
4: Absolutely,
2: you know, split yeah. off this task. Give it to somebody who's, you know, uh, case in point, our graphics designer for our website, Dax. You know, he he comes up with stuff that I could never do. Absolutely, and it's because he's thinking about it all the time, and and it just so happens that he writes code too. So,
5: and you know, he, that's he the kind of person cares. you
2: want. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he cares a whole <laughs> lot about it. That's why it looks so good. <laughs>
5: Well yeah. yeah
3: I mean you 've got to put your head in a particular space. How are you going to think about these things? Dax certainly thinks with an eye to you know how things look and how they 're attractive you know we We other folks think about how transactions are managed efficiently and reliably, and how yeah. are we going to scale this and how are we going to maintain this? These are all problems that somebody needs to think about, mm. and no one person can think about them all They'll, their their head 'll explode how's this Absolutely. podcast
2: going to sound good. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: Well,
4: that's not good, care. Either.
2: Hey, all right. No. <laughs> I, I rarely get the opportunity to blow my own horn. Yeah.
3: You know, it's talking about consulting, of course, something I've done, I spent a lot of years doing. And, I, and, you know, one of the things you mentioned was it's always easy to slam the other guy to say, yeah. well, these guys made a mess. And I just, I've always had a sense that, that you, you steer clear of that. It's, you never know what minefield you're going to step into there. Sure. And it's not professional. There's very few people I've ever met that code maliciously. You know, they are actually were trying to make a mess. Most people <laughs> try the best they can. You right. know, this is and uh, uh, this is. I know it's this is your favorite line of mine that you like to use, which is "never attribute to malice that which can be better explained by incompetence
4: or
2: stupidity."
3: Oh. Right? <laughs> yeah, the guy didn't know better. That's why he opened a transaction at nine o'clock this morning. He doesn't want to close it till five. Yes.
4: Well, enough about Complus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that was always my favorite. I have a long-running transaction, and in my mind, that's, you know, more than five seconds.
5: Yeah,
3: over a second.
4: (laughs) And he's Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, 12 hours.
3: Right. Yeah. There's a... yeah. No, 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 I don't want optimistic concurrency. I want pessimistic concurrency, but disconnected pessimistic concurrency.
4: <laughs> yeah, that should be able to be done.
3: <laughs> that will be a problem, yeah. <laughs> so just lock the record and go away. Okay.
2: That is a great line, Richard. Never attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. <laughs> I'm going to put that on a t-shirt and wear it. I've had to use that ever since you, I heard that come out of your mouth. I've had to use that to explain people's behavior to to them, uh, not other people's behavior to other people, three or four yeah. times. It's well, funny. and it's
3: why it's. I think it's one of the when you're confronted with a mess like that, you don't get angry right. because this wasn't intentional. He didn't know better. Right. He didn't understand that. You know, all you got to do is explain. Oh, well, you know, you'll find if you keep a transaction open that long, yeah, you're pretty much limited to one user. Yeah.
4: Do you have more than one user? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I notice a
3: lot of computers in here, so I'm thinking
2: maybe you have more than one user. You're hoping. Sean, tell us, uh, tell us another story from, from the trenches. Something interesting that happened recently. Um, or outrageous.
4: Let me think about that for a minute. Um, Some gratuitous I work- sex
2: and violence for the listeners.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was working for a um, consulting company, and I went to um, visit a uh, uh, company that was trying to do a, a Fox Pro conversion to use .NET and SQL Server, which is mm. always a much bigger leap than, mm. than people you know take for granted.
3: Yeah, you ever notice that the people who do that, they've only ever used one data store in their lives, so they presume they all work that way.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And it was interesting because when we when we went and looked at what they were doing in FoxPro, it's very easy to say, okay, let's take this query and just create a table, and then we'll just keep that table around until we're done with it. And that may be the user may want that to be around for a week or a month or a year. In SQL Server, that's not all that good of an idea to just be creating and dropping tables for each and every yeah. user. And uh, that was always a, a fun one to discuss. I'm, a, I'm an old Clipper hack from, you know, before I was C++, I did xbase. Automate Clipper 86 6 baby. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm still pissed off at CA because
3: You two
2: of- guys want to get a room?
4: Oh, uh,
3: man. You know what? <laughs> Computer Associates is the only company that competes for with AOL as the dumping ground of good software. I'm, I'm it's with it's where programs go to die. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter or anything. I'm just saying. Not at all. Not at all.
2: I'm glad I stayed clear of that mess. Yeah. yeah.
4: Com- Computer Associates buying Clipper was the best thing that ever happened to me, though. It got me away. It
2: made you from go somewhere else.
4: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would, I would be, you know, those FoxPro guys at the FoxPro convention, complaining about how FoxPro isn't changing, even though I don't want it to change.
3: Right. Um, Both guys. Mm. Yeah.
4: Oh, I, the funny thing is, uh, you know, I, I get, uh, I go around the country probably talk twelve or fifteen times a year for Ineta, and pretty much at every talk I give, there's two or three FoxPro guys.
3: Are there it's to, the same guys just okay. following
2: you from talk to talk? <laughs> Come on, man. It, it, Give them a break. It, <laughs> they're a tight-knit community.
4: It is. They have to be. Bob and <laughs> Ned are both very We're going nice. to
2: get lots of hate mail now, Richard. Oh, Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> I have some really good Fox Pro developer friends, and you do too. Yes, they do, <laughs> but
3: they also program in Visual Basic because
2: they need to eat.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I did
2: not say this. yes i laughed but i did not say it
4: well it's interesting as as much as over the last year um i've started to be afraid i'm becoming the old bitter man or as i like to call him the other ted neward um (laughs) (laughs) about microsoft
2: i'm gonna die
4: i've actually been um i've been really excited about what's happening in the um uh, Avalon space.
5: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I've
4: spent a lot of time with Avalon, and and, and I actually got a hold of Cider um, recently and started playing with it, and uh, I no longer have to tell people it's so different from Windforms that you have to be afraid because Cider makes it feel like Windforms. Yeah. Right. I don't know if either of you have had any chance to look at Cider, but uh, I
2: had a chance to drink some last fall, but no, there good you go. For you.
4: Have you got a web
3: uh, link for us that we can share with the uh listeners?
4: For Cider? Yeah. Um it's the just the December drop of of uh WinFX. Um it's a Let me see if I can find what it's called.
2: Oh, this Does is a code name Cider for That's WinFX. The code
4: name um if you install the Visual Studio extensions with the WinFX um, CTP. Okay. It's included. It's just the um xaml designer that works inside of visual studio okay yeah they it's good to what know they, what microsoft has done and they released uh, two designers for xaml one is really meant for um, d- designer people and the other is meant for programmers mm. cider is the one that's meant for programmers okay and now suddenly and i'm sure chris sells is going to my butt for not remembering it, there's the other one that is really... It's outside of Visual Studio. And that's really the for,
2: uh, Expression thing?
4: I don't, it's not actually Expression. It's um, There's a third product. Huh. It's expression is kind of the... the... Um, illustrator killer. Right. Yeah. No, this one's really meant to produce XAML, not just to be able to export to XAML.
2: Well, it, uh, that's... Uh, the Expression suite has as far as i know has three products and one of them is a xaml designer the second one uh lets allows you to hook that application up to data and you know some kind of property driven logic and uh and export that all to visual studio
4: okay then that then that is what i'm thinking of i didn't i didn't think they had hooked that all up into expression yet but Mm
2: -hmm.
4: i can't look at everything (laughs)
2: No, no, not... <laughs> yep. This was this is uh, something that we saw at the PDC and really loved.
4: Oh, cool. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the yeah. three products are acrylic, sparkle, and quartz. That's it.
4: That's it. Yeah. Sparkle is the one I'm thinking for the, for designers, yeah. which I'm sure yes. is going to be part of expression. Yeah. Um, yeah acrylic is
2: the pure XAML designer. Right. Sparkle is the guy that hooks it up to data and data, you know, properties and stuff like that, and allows you to come out with 90% of an application, and then that can export to Visual Studio, from what I understand. So,
4: um, so Sparkle's the one that, that secretaries are supposed to use to write software? No, that would be Acrylic.
2: Cool.
4: Oh, okay. Acrylic is the pure
2: <laughs> XAML designer.
4: I still go back to that article. I, I'm
2: Windows 95, is that what you're talking about? The secretaries are supposed to be able to...
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The component development. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Article about drag-and-drop components, and yeah. even secretaries will be able to
2: Right. I slam to secretaries everywhere. <laughs> 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 I'm getting yeah. an email from a secretary right now, as a matter of fact. What are we, we going to call this, the hate mail show? Uh, the rant? Yeah. The, the Sean Rantz show, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, um, I, I, I like to ask people if there's anything they've downloaded or a website that they've visited lately, maybe outside the realm of... Uh, of .NET, or maybe not, but uh, any tool that you've found recently or anything you want to share in that regard?
4: Yeah, there is. I'm um, um, trying to remember what it is all of a sudden. Uh, where did it go? You could have it right off the top of my head.
2: That's what editing's for.
4: I'm actually a big fan of, of Zip Genius right now, which is a free WinZip killer. Zip Genius. I got with Zip
3: Genius. Huh.
4: Yeah. I'm a big fan of it. Oh, and I, I stole this from Scott Hanselman, so I'm sure he um, has already talked about it. But he, had a tool a he has a replacement for um, PDF or Acrobat Reader that I just love. Really? Because it... Oh, uh, yeah, I
3: saw that on his blog. What was it called?
4: Um, it is called... Does I open up an Acrobat file? I do no. know. um, It's not just a replacement for reader, uh, it uh, replaces the browser one as well, and it's about 4,000% faster and doesn't try to sell you things.
2: Nice. It's called
4: Foxit PDF Reader. Foxit? And it's free, yeah. Uh,
2: F-O-X-I-T?
4: F-O-X-I-T software.com. Very cool. Yeah. Big fan.
2: I got to check it, that out immediately. Yeah. Oh yeah,
3: getting tired of PDF reader.
2: Well, yeah, the I'm, problem with you know they it wants to upgrade and then when it upgrades it crashes and doesn't work. You know I have that experience every once in a while.
4: I also like and, the and upgrade and then, that includes like the photo editor. Oh yeah. And the, oh, it,
3: and the Yahoo toolbar. Well, excellent. Uh, oh yeah, nice. the Yahoo.
4: I almost forgot about that. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm currently a um, uh, 360 owner and. I'm a huge fan, except for some minor annoyances. But if anyone can find one, I suggest everybody go get a 360,
2: an Xbox 360. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm still waiting. I'm gonna wait until the the next glut on the market happens. I have
4: to admit, I did I did go eBay to find one, but I didn't. Uh, I did didn't pay, get the uh,
2: pay top dollar for it.
4: I didn't. I, I paid a premium of about a hundred bucks on a premium. System. Oh, okay. Um, so, I wasn't going to pay a lot of money for it, but I figured.
2: A couple other things before we wind up sure. here. Uh, we have jammed before. We have. We have.
4: We have. I've recently added a link. Uh, I used to have it all hosted on mp3.com, but a link to uh, my music on uh, Audio Guy. Uh, hmm. Is it still there? Yep.
2: Still there. Great. And you're a guitar player. I am a guitar player. Say.
4: And singer,
2: yeah well uh, well, yeah, that we played at the uh, two thousand and three p d c Richard Hale Shaw and uh, playing bass, I was playing drums, a little guitar, and Jeff Proci played yeah, drums, he did with us a little bit and guitar, we sort of swapped off, and you were playing guitar, and uh, who else was playing I'm
4: trying to think who else
2: I think it might have been it
4: um. I don't remember who was singing. I know that you sang some, I sang some. Yeah,
2: I think we just mixed it up a little bit.
4: Yeah, it was just kind of a. It was fun. Or an open jam.
2: And you work with Mark Dunn in Atlanta. I do. Yeah, I do.
4: Yeah, he's, I um. He's got some projects that uh, I'm uh, running for him. Um, that's kind of a lot of fun. Mark's a great guy to hang out. He's with. He's a great guy.
2: I You know, I can't say enough good things about him. He's a, he's been a, he was a great co-host. He he's a brilliant teacher, a uh, brilliant technologist, developer, and he's got business savvy too. He he and I are partnering with uh, you know Franklin's Net and Dunn Training. We're doing some things together. He's I'd teaching heard that. some classes up here <clears throat> in the near future, and um,
3: excellent taste
2: in barbecue and bourbon too. Yes, yes, he does. Yeah.
4: Yeah, but for some reason he doesn't like cognac. So I'm going to continue to hold that against him.
2: <laughs> Maybe he just hasn't <laughs> had the right stuff. <laughs> there
5: you
4: go. Actually, we were at the MVP Summit together, and uh, he did not like the cognac they were serving, and and I was pretty impressed
2: with the cognac. That was Couvoisier. Yes, it was. Yeah, I, the best cognac I've had is Cordon Bleu. That's my that's my fave. It's also about a hundred bucks a bottle. Wow. Well, yeah.
4: And it better be your favorite. It better be my favorite.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we've. Geez, let me see. ado dot net guitars, barbecue, bourbon, and cognac. I think we've just about covered it all.
4: I think we have.
2: Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, thanks for stepping in at the last minute. This was a great conversation. It's been, you know, a long time coming. I know, and uh, I,
4: I appreciate it, and I've had uh, just a blast. It's been a pleasure.
2: Cool. Thanks for educating us, and we'll <laughs> uh, we'll see you. Let's see, we'll see you tomorrow on Hansel Minutes and uh, Thursday on DNR TV, and uh, on Friday I'm going to sleep. Have a good week.
0: .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maceolik that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never Got sleeps. .net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop. It's time to get your impact back.
5: my